for the sake of our visitors, so you know where we've been, where we're headed, and where we are. Uh, we just finished a series in Galatians. We're headed toward the book of Acts. And right now we're in a series in the Proverbs, a six-part short series in the Proverbs, but we're taking a break from our break for Advent. Uh, and we're celebrating Advent, uh, and some people believe Advent is the invention of the papacy or something like that and obviously we want to be careful with tradition and church calendar but it's good to um, take a look at the incarnation this season of, of, of our year and to follow after our forefathers so we're looking at advent um, for this month and uh, I've planned a four-part series a need for our savior that's this morning promise wait and arrival of a savior so those are the four parts of this series and so this morning we'll be looking at a need for a savior in the famous passage of the fall in genesis 3 and uh, of course if i were doing an exposition through genesis this passage would take me you know me uh, it would take me weeks um so uh, but we'll be looking specifically at our need for a savior um this morning in, in this passage so let's pray uh, lord god Rebellion is our natural state as fallen creatures, and we doubt your word, we doubt your goodness, we think we have it in ourselves to make good and righteous judgments without you, and we think we can fend for our own best interests better than you can. Father, we, th- we, we think we're good. Just because we treat people nicely or because we accomplish things with skill and intelligence or because we are fairly moral people... Help us to see that goodness is not goodness outside of you. We need you, and we need you to save us. And we cry to you to save us, knowing we don't deserve salvation. Grant us repentance and give us life and grow us in grace, we ask. And may we more and more each day, by the power of the Spirit, cling more and more tightly to the cross of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Genesis 3, 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is God's word. You may be seated. I have noticed that the secular society that we live in has become more spiritual, I think, in the last few decades. Um, and spirituality is not necessarily Christianity, uh, but it borrows from Christianity. A man is valuable because he carries with him a spark of the divine. A man's value is built into our conscience um, because we are God's image bearers. Uh, and Christian ethics are often borrowed as well, if, if not turned on their heads. Usually um, the love of man precedes the love of God as the first and greatest commandment. Uh, and usually the love of self precedes the love of other men. But there is love of man and sometimes love of God. Love of God is often seen as uh, obedience or love of man in itself or some sort of mystical relationship with the divine. And likewise, the cultural mandate to subdue and care for the earth is really, in our day, elevated to supreme importance. But like all false religions, these amount to commands. They amount to rule-keeping. And while all readily admit that the world is not what it should be, that no one is perfect, that some form of change needs to happen, the notion of salvation is foreign. Uh, fix it, yes, we need to fix it, but salvation from outside of us, that is a bit much. Uh, this idea is present in the church. I sometimes listen to popular Christian radio in the car. I try to keep in touch with what's going on in the larger American evangelical church. Uh, that's probably an overstatement. Sometimes I put my finger in the air and see which way the wind is blowing. Uh, there's this one song that gets a lot of airtime, I've noticed, and it's often gushed over by the host. It's called Love God and Love People. Have you heard this song? The chorus goes, Gotta keep it real simple. Keep it real simple. Bring everything right back to ground zero. Because it all comes down to this. Love God and love people. We're living in a world that keeps breaking, but if we want to find a way to change it, it all comes down to this. Love God and love people. Uh, I didn't know obeying the whole sum of God's moral law was simple. <laughs> if only we could do that, we could change the world, right? The song continues, Oh, this is freedom, this is freedom, the keys to the kingdom. Knowing life will be found when love can be loud. Because love is what it's all about. I don't know where Christ is in that song. Uh, I cringe, but I'm not any different on a heart level. That's the thing is we like to find things that are wrong with the world and the church and leave ourselves out. But I live in a way that betrays what I really think about myself in the world, that I can fix it which is in contrast to the Christian mes message, which is, I need saving. 
The heart of the Christian message is that God saves. And if that gospel truth will uh, strike us as lovely, it will be because we first have been struck by a keen awareness of our great need for salvation. And that's what we're going to consider today for our first Advent message is our need for salvation. I have seven reasons from this narrative in Genesis 3 for why we need a Savior. Um, kind of the first set of three reasons are the things that, that happened in the fall. Um, they are the sins of Adam and, and our sins. And the following four are kind of the results of the fall or the things we need saving from the painful realities we need to be rescued from. So the first reason that we need a Savior is that we are deceived. We are deceived. Eve found that the serpent's arguments were compelling, apparently. He is, after all, crafty, it says. Uh, We don't have time, and I don't have the answers to tell you how Satan manifested himself in a snake. But he did choose what... Genesis says was the craftiest or the craftiest creature that God had made as his manifestation, who was more crafty than any beast of the field, it says. And the serpent is a devious adversary. He's skilled in the art of duping us and tricking us. He comes to us and he speaks half-truths. He twists the word of God. And here he challenges two things about God. These things he loves to challenge God's word and God's goodness. That's always his M.O. He wants to undercut God's word because God's word contains all the promises and all the commands. And if he can shake our confidence in his words, he can instill in us doubt and unbelief and disobedience and rebellion. Did God actually say, I think that's his favorite question, did God really say that? He asks it here, but he asks it in a half-truth that actually paints God as being stingy. He says, did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? (laughs) Isn't that the case in our own temptations? If there's a commandment we don't find appealing today, we might say, well, I, I actually have a different interpretation. Did God really say? That's what we ask Serpent also tar- targets God's goodness. He wants to, to question uh, whether God really has our best interests in mind. Here in verses 4 and 5, he outright contradicts God. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And are we not suspicious of God's motives from time to time? When things don't go the way we want, we think... God does not have my best interests in mind right here. He forgot little old me. Everybody else he's got in his providence, but not me. So we have drunk the Kool-Aid. We have bought in. We are deceived as people, as humans. And that's why we need someone to come from outside of us to bring us truth and to bring us salvation. Now, the second reason we need a Savior is we know good and evil. I've always kind of wondered what that meant, knowing good and evil. Um, 
were, were Adam and Eve kind of morally clueless? God had given them this command and, and given them the consequences of breaking it, so they knew some sense what good and evil was. So what does that mean? Um, it could mean that they knew good and evil experientially after they fell. Um, certainly that's part of it. Uh, but to me, the explanation that makes the most sense is that they would gain the ability or more accurately assume the responsibility for themselves to make judgments about good and evil for themselves. In other words, instead of being merely representatives of God as his image bearers on earth, spreading his commands, doing his will, they would take it upon themselves to decide this is good, this is evil, this is bad, this is righteous, this is just. And that's exactly what Eve did, isn't it? She, she committed the sin in her heart before she executed it with her hands and mouth. She decided that she liked the look of the fruit. It would look good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. It was desirable to make one wise. When God made everything, he declared it good. And now here Eve, knowing God had declared this one thing bad, declares it good. She chose for herself what was good. And isn't that what we do? And it's because we've bought into those lies of Satan, that God's word isn't true, and that he doesn't have my best interest in mind. I'd be better off fending for myself. Every sin has those two elements in it. One obvious example we could bring up, extramarital sex. It will mess with your life. Don't do it. People say, well, whatever. God is keeping me from something good. He wouldn't do that. Or perhaps our anger. Uh, Unrighteous burning against your neighbor is murderous in your heart. Don't do it. Well, actually, I have a right to do it in this particular circumstance. (laughs) Or here's an interesting one. What about when we obey God but take the credit? Love your neighbor. I bought groceries for my neighbor. Look how good I am. We question God. We doubt his goodness and his wisdom because we have this knowledge of good and evil. We make our own judgments now. Even good works done in the name of declaring one's own moral uprightness are rebellion at their core. We need saving. The problem with all of this is that it is self-worship, it is idolatry, as we just read about in our confession. That's the third reason we need a Savior, is that we are idolaters. Do you think of yourself as an idolater? I'd kind of be inclined to say, well, I don't burn incense at the, the foot of Dagon. I'm not an idolater. I don't have any stone carved images in my house. If someone were to ask me on the street if I were an idolater, I think my first thought would probably be, no, I do worship the one true living God. But Paul always gives me pause in Colossians when he says, covetousness is idolatry. Adam and Eve were the first Romans 1 idolaters, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Idolatry is lifting anything above God. And in knowing good and evil, making our own judgments about what is right and what is wrong, we elevate ourselves above God, above his word. 
Our word becomes superior to God's word. Our definition of good is better than God's. In effect, we lay aside the imago dei for the imago vir. I had to look up the Latin word for man. I don't know any Latin. It's vir. Image of man. We lay aside the image of God for the image of man. We would rather not represent God's rule on earth. Instead, we want it. We want rule on earth. So all three of these reasons for why we need a Savior have a common theme. Um, Adam, and, Adam and Eve's rebellion consists in elevating themselves above God. In truth, in wisdom, in authority, in worship. And that's fundamental to all of our sin. <coughs> Which is why I kind of find the whole, if it's not hurting anybody, it's okay uh, motif unconvincing. Realize it or not, that pragmatic form of morality is kind of the water in the pot that we frogs are sitting in and it's getting hotter. And I always think, I guess that would be a fine basis for some form of morality if naturalism were true. Of course, that form of morality assumes no divine law, no divine lawgiver. It clearly assumes that there is no such thing as a fall from grace. And as Christians, we have to realize that building towers to God is actually a bad idea. Hubris is at the root of all other sins. So we can build the most lovely human society with the most moral people in it. But if it's built on the hubris of man and man looking good, with, with no regard for God, then it is a whitewashed sepulcher. We truly need to be saved, even from our boast, most best uh, efforts. So those first three reasons for needing a Savior, deception, knowledge of good and evil, and idolatry, are kind of the substance of the fall. And now these next four are the results of fall. The, the fall, these are... Uh, the painful realities that we need to be saved of, saved from. So number four, the image of God is corrupted in us. Because of the fall, because we've taken it upon ourselves to define right and wrong, because we have lifted up ourselves as idols, we can't represent God in the world the way we were created to. Adam was called upon to tend the garden, to guard and to protect it. And it seems he was called to kind of expand its borders on the earth. He and Eve were meant to fill the earth with their progeny together and to subdue it and rule it as representatives of God with dominion in the earth. And some scholars have, and I think rightly, identified the Garden of Eden as a sort of temple, the place where God would meet with man. And in an unfallen world, had they lived out their mandate without rebelling, they would have brought the whole world and all of their generations into that relationship, that, that communion. But as a result of their rebellion, they were actually cast out of the garden. And the garden was guarded with a flaming sword. So the mandate continues. We see that in, in the story of Noah after the flood God reiterates the mandate, fill the earth, subdue it. But the image of God in us is not gone, but it is corrupted, it is corroded, it is tarnished within us. 
you can see the spark of the image of God in what men achieve um, and the way we've achieved a degree of dominion on the earth. Particularly in the last 500 years or so in the scientific age, I think we've subdued the world in a way that men before us probably could never have imagined. Our ability to create and invent is that spark of the divine image within us. The question is, who have we represented in all of our advances? Are all of our advances in the name of of God's will and his glory in the world? Or do we applaud the skills and ability of man and, and forget about God? So we need to be saved because our original purpose of of imaging God in the world and exercising dominion on his behalf has been corrupted. At, At best, it's a blurry Polaroid image, very foggy. Our next, our fifth reason for needing a savior is that our communion with God is disrupted. Our communion with God. As a consequence of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, men's eyes were opened. They knew they were naked and they they covered themselves from God. They hid from him. When he was walking through the garden in the cool of the evening, presumably to commune with man. And no, I can't speculate on what form he took there. But presumably he'd been doing this before. And this time they jumped into the bushes. This time they hid. They were afraid. They did not want to be exposed. That has to be one of the saddest human interactions that's ever happened. God made man to be in communion with him, and there he is cowering behind some bushes. It's tragic. We do that too. We're always trying to hide our most vulnerable parts. What's the first sign that someone's fallen into a pattern of sin? They disappear. They fall off the face of a map. They don't want to be around you anymore. They avoid church. They avoid authority. They avoid positive influences because they know better. Because they are ashamed. Because they don't want their consciences pricked. Calvin comments here. He says, they are not yet summoned to the tribunal of God. There is none who accuses them. Is not then the sense of shame which rises spontaneously a sure token of guilt? And he goes on, there is none of us who does not smile at their folly, since certainly it was ridiculous to place such a covering before the eyes of God. In the meanwhile, we are all infected with the same disease, for indeed we tremble and we are covered with shame at the first compunctions of conscience. But self-indulgence soon steals in and induces us to resort to vain trifles, as if it were an easy thing to delude God. It's funny, he's basically saying they cover themselves with fig leaves like they can hide from God. How silly is that? And we do the same thing. I don't know about you, but this is an aspect of the fall that I feel pointedly. That communion with God does not come easy. It's laborious. We all look up to those people who we perceive to be holy and we think, man, they commune with God so freely and easily. I don't think so. I don't think anyone communes with God in the fallen state freely and easily. I want to fellowship with Him and freely 
relate to Him. There's always this barrier of my own sin in the way. My own misplaced affections distract me from God. The most beautiful object in the world, they distract me from God. Not object, person. That's terrible to say out loud, but it's true. It's particularly interesting to me that here, um, from verse 8 to verse 13, the author of Genesis, Moses, uses the covenant name of God. He says, Yahweh Elohim, Lord God. That's a little bit anachronistic if you think about it, because in Exodus, he's given the divine name, and now he's using it here in, in Genesis. But remember, the original audience of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is the wilderness Israelites. And I have to think part of the reason he uses this divine name is to warn the people from acting like their first parents while they're in the wilderness. Here they are in an act of redemption that foreshadows the act of redemption. God saving his people, he brought them up out of the land of bondage. And here they are, they're they're tempted by idolatry. All around them, the people are worshiping false gods. And we all remember the, the incident of the golden calf. Idolatry is a very real temptation. So I think at least part of the reason Moses recounts the history of the fall and uses the covenant name of God is to remind the people in the wilderness and to remind us that though we've fallen from grace, in God's grace, he's still willing to be I am to us to fellowship with us, to redeem us, to bring us out of the land of bondage. And he's warning, watch out, because your, your genetics, your original sin, is always trying to get in the way of that communion. So we have indeed lost communion with God, and we need saving from that. And our sixth reason for needing salvation is that our fellowship with man is corroded as well. So our fellowship or communion with God, but also our communion with man. You'll notice immediately they put on fig leaves, they cover up, uh, and obviously that's a vain uh, attempt to hide from God, but I think also to hide from one another, from their shame of one another. And you see friction, which is present now, that wasn't present before. When God questions them, he, he blames Eve right away. This is a woman you gave me. In a sinless world, there's nothing to hide. No one will try to, to leverage our vulnerabilities. But in a fallen world where my, mankind believes himself to be the final arbiter of good and evil, who's to say we'll agree on what good and evil is? In fact, wouldn't everyone decide to, based on their own self-interest? What, what the Bible calls everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. It's so obvious to everyone that humanity is in rough shape, and it confounds me that people still preach the, the Beatles song, All We Need Is Love. Right? Solution, that... that it's like, if we would just do better, we would just do better. <laughs> like when my kids are fighting and I yell across the house, get along. Yeah, that's really addressing the heart issues. <laughs> do better. <laughs> if the world would only see that we'll never love apart from a Savior. 
Number seven, our final reason we need a a Savior. This is not the final reason. There's thousands. But for this message is that we are subject to death. We're subject to death. The devil's lie was not true. Uh, There's a partial truth. They didn't die immediately, but they did die. They died spiritually. And they and all their children have died since, except for the one or two. Likewise, their bodies began to decay, and they did die. God's word always stands. He said, if you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. And that's what happened. The wages of sin is death. Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, What is the misery of that estate wherein two men fell? And it answers, All mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Now I have friends, and I'm sure you do too, that find that to be a very unloving message. I like Jesus, but I don't like, I, I don't think all these religions condemning each other to hell is very loving. Well, I'm sorry you don't like it. I'm not all that excited about death and hell myself. But we have to admit there is corruption in this world. We have to admit every single person, at least in my experience, dies. Why is that? And that worldview that I just described, has to assume first that we do have the right to choose our own truth, and second, that there's no such thing as a fall, and third, that there is no God, or at the very least, there's no divine being that requires our worship and obedience. We are subject to the penalty of death because the only God, the holy, righteous God, has laid out just laws for us and we've transgressed them. That simple. Whether we like it or not, we do deserve death. We do deserve eternal torment for our rebellion. And he can execute that penalty with doing no damage to his benevolence. If we're going to get relief from our state of sin and misery, it's because he chooses to be a savior to us. I hope you didn't expect anything different from a sermon on why we need saving, but this has been a grim message. But I'm reminded of what John says in the first uh, chapter of his gospel. when He says that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness moves us closer to the source of light. A grim prognosis for fallen humanity drives us to understand our need of a Savior. So I want us, before we close, to be pointed to Jesus as our Savior. And I just want to think for a moment how Jesus is the answer to each of these seven reasons why we need a Savior. So just briefly and not exhaustively. The first one being that we are deceived. Uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus intercedes for us in John 17 that we would be sanctified in the truth. And he says to his Father, your word is truth. 
Second one, that we know good and evil, we try to decide good and evil for ourselves. Jesus, unlike us, his will is perfectly conformed to the Father's will. He kept the law for us. Though we wander around doing whatever seems right to us, he kept it for us. And he has sent the helper to conform us more and more to the will of the Father. Thirdly, we are idolaters. Uh, Jesus intercedes for us. When we worship, he intercedes for us at the right hand of God. We pray and we worship, um, and we do so, importantly, not in our own name, but in the name of Jesus, on his merits, knowing that our own best efforts are feeble and tainted with sin. Fourthly, that the image of God is corrupted in us. Jesus is the answer to that as well. Jesus is, Hebrews says, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the only person who has ever imaged God well. And Paul says in Colossians that the whole fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in him. And then amazingly, this always just blows me away. He adds, and you have been filled in him. He is conforming us into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to the next. Fifth, our communion with God has been corrupted. Uh, the Apostle John proclaims in uh, 1 John that the incarnate Christ, what we have seen, what we have heard, we proclaim to you in order that we could be brought into the fellowship of God. Likewise, the fellowship of the saints, which is the, the sixth, that our fellowship with man is corroded. He says, 1 John 1, 3-4, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you, so that our joy may be complete. Though our fellowship with each other is, is corroded, we are being built, every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, into a community of believers, in, into the temple of God. And finally, the fact that we are subject to death is uh, no issue for Jesus either. Jesus came that he would bear the penalty for our sin, that he would bear the wrath of God, that he would die in our stead, and that we would have life and have it abundantly. So for this first Advent message, do we need a Savior? Yes, we need a Savior. The desperate state of mankind screams at us that we need a Savior. And indeed, we need a very specific Savior, the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. May the darkness drive us to the light. Amen. Amen.